two of Eighteenth Wall Productions presents the television crossover universe of the Grand Hall Network. Coming to you live from behind the Chrome microphone of excellence is me, James Boyachuk, CEO of Wall of Eighteenth Wall Productions, and also MH Norris, Mystery Maven, and Sci-Fi Sorceress. You know, I adored that intro so much; it's actually now my Twitter bio. Applause! 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 Now, we're going to be jumping right back into where we left off with Mike Ass Harris, who has graciously agreed to stay around for just a few more minutes as we talk about some more of his stories and his thoughts on the world, the universe, and if we have time, Disney sitcoms in general. Now, I think we should make time for that one. We will see if we can. Now, moving directly into our interview with Micah Harris, welcome back. As always, you are one of the guiding lights of the television crossover universe. Now, I specifically want to jump right into one of your most recent tales of the Shadowman story, and correct me if I'm wrong, it may actually be your most recent, The Goat of St. Elster. Now, I'm trying to decide where I even want to start with this, because there are so many ways we could enter into it. I'm going to save the most controversial aspect of your story for at the end, so... Let's jump okay. into the part. But, but with, just just remember, it's not officially out yet. <laughs> okay. It, it'll be out in the beginning of the year. Okay. I so. am behind the times. Or ahead. You're ahead. You're ahead of the times. Tommy, why me? Okay. So I believe this is the kind of thing we can talk about without spoiling. If it is, throw a brick at me and we'll move to the next one. But we need a musical cue for when we mention Karnacki. He's our mascot. But in this story, you make use of Sigson. He of Karnacki's useful cult tome, the Sigson Manuscript. Most authors make him something morally gray at best or something dark and eldritch at worst. You take him in exactly the opposite direction. You invest him with a very different, much more pure backstory. Could you tell us about that and probably less spoilery what inspired you to make him something so much more on the side of the angels or should I say Aurorsa which I know I've butchered the pronunciation of uh, well um, I, I wasn't familiar um, with these uh, you know the other takes on him uh, but one of the things that struck me uh, was that in one of those um, excerpts uh, from his manuscript, uh, he mentions directly uh, that the hog uh, is a you know has to be uh, warded off uh, specifically with the uh, reference to Jesus Christ. Yes, and so that struck me as something that seemed pretty specific <laughs> to me. You know that uh, who would be making that kind of statement and saying. You have no other power, you know, than otherwise than to invoke Jesus Christ aid. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting to me that for all the times Karnacki will take the Sigson manuscript at its word, he comes closest to dying on a case, the Hog case, when he specifically ignores that instruction with all of his newfangled lights and electricity. <laughs> I didn't think about that. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Now, let's move into... You do a lot to conflate the, let's say, occult cosmology of C.S. Lewis and William Hope Hodgson in this story. Okay. So what inspired you to bring two very, very different authors together? Well, I'm not wide-read in Hodgson by any means. 
but from what I what I know, it seems like um, these what is it called them unknown forces or uh, yes. There's some reference to that I took to be beings. Uh, yeah, I don't remember side. his exact phrase, but yes. Yeah, side of the good guys, but it was very vague, you know. Shockingly. Um, and vague. So, <laughs> and so that 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 size of a blank, uh, you know, that kind of lacuna uh, makes it very interesting. I mean, or very interest uh, easy to drop, uh, you know, something else in. And uh, so I filled that blank uh, with uh, with Lewis's uh, angelic beings, the Adela. Okay. Yes. Um, the yeah, villains the- in this story are fascinating. Where did oh, they come you. from, and all of that good stuff? This is actually a pretty fascinating story, especially with where your very Orson Welles-like main villain comes from. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can almost say he was cast uh, for the part. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that is from uh, Mal Malpertwee, uh, Jean Ray's. Uh, novel that I guess it's one of those that's more esteemed than it's actually read. Uh, at least in English, I think it can be kind of difficult to to get a hold of a copy. I looked up and did, um, but it does seem like it deserves a better distribution and better. I mean, the edition I got was pretty bare bones, you know. And oh yeah, it seems I like mean, it, it I deserves actually went a, looking for the novel after reading your story and. I couldn't find a halfway affordable copy anywhere. Wow. Well, this English translation came out like in the 90s. And, uh, you know, I found it on Amazon. And I was lucky enough. But like I say, the story should have a much more deluxe treatment uh, than it's gotten, uh, especially with the weight that it seems to carry. Um, But, yeah, uh, the villain from that... Oh, am I drawing a bank on his name? What's his name? Help me, James. Um, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let's take a moment to note that the sentence just came out of his mouth. I just need to come at the moment. I'm impressed that the author and the interviewer, and I just read no. the story this morning, and neither of us can remember. Um, no, no. If I could, if I could. Um... Uh, if I if I could uh, ca- uh, shoot, not Cassidine. It's his name. I'm pulling up the story. <laughs> we actually are pulling up the story. Yeah, ca- oh. Cassius, not Clay. See now, Cassive. I was like, now I feel better because I forget stuff of my own stuff all the time. It's Cassive. Yeah. Ca- ca- okay, Cassive. Okay, Cassive. Okay, Cassive. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, Cassiv uh, is uh, sort of uh, a, a minor, but may, yeah, at the same time, major character in Malpertwee. Uh, Kassav is a, uh, a, a wizard, a magician of advanced age. And in fact, I think the only time we actually see him on, on stage in Malpertwee is when he is dying. Um, but he's the one who's engineered things in the past, you know, that, that's got things going uh, in the back in the backstory. Um, he um, is a character that you would like to see more of, uh, you know, and it's when he's not bedridden and on his last breath. 
Um, and in fact, uh, Matthew uh, Bow um, before me uh, did a story uh, with Kasav in it. It was really good. And uh, it was in a previous Tales of the Shadow Man. I do not uh, remember the title of that. No big surprise, I guess. And uh, But I do know that he was uh, uh, after the... Um, the demon from uh, Nightmare, uh, not Nightmare, Night on Bald Mountain from the Disney Chernabog, yeah. or whatever. Kassav uh, was after him. That I don't one. think I read that one. I will need to hunt that down. Oh yeah, because I think everything Matt writes is good. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I wish not read I, a I wish story. yeah that I had that kind of record. He's just, he's a fun and good to read writer and um, and, and smart and. Uh, in fact, we collaborated a long time ago on a Becky Sharp story. Uh, oh, yes. I was always flattered that he liked my take on Becky that much. But but anyway, Kasav's deal in Malpertwee, uh, is, uh he has found what remains in the novel of the Greek gods. Uh, and it, it's kind of weird uh, when you read about it. You don't really know exactly what's going on because you get the idea that they're really dwindled, and yet when they find them on the island, they find them on. Uh, you know, one of them is, I think, referred to as large as a mountain. And yeah. um, But basically, these are, you know, dwindling beings, and he finds a way um, to give them a new lease on life. Um, a new lease on life, and... Um, Basically, that involves uh, taxiderming in human skin <laughs> and uh, filling them with Greek god. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so then they, they are incarnate, but don't have any real sense, conscious sense, most of them, about who they were. Um, although I think it's interesting that, you know, that at least in the film version. Uh, of Malpertwee, which is probably also overly priced and out of print. Uh, of course. Is that, uh, I looked for that, uh, too. Yeah, it's that they are, like Vulcan is working. They all, Malpertwee is this castle or mansion they live in, and uh, the one who was Vulcan is down in the basement shoveling the furnace, you know. Uh, the three women who were the three fates are always seen as sitting around needy. <laughs> you know, so they're all following true to form. Really uh, but fun. they don't re yeah, remember who they are. So um, so anyway, that's where Kassab comes from, uh, yes. the, the bad guy. And the Orson Welles reference is that, you know, yes, he was played by Orson Welles, and probably you can hear the backstory on the DVD, you know, probably the most incredibly amount of money for such a little bit of work uh, <laughs> that he got through that. That is but, the definition uh, of his later career. <laughs> I guess you're right, yeah. Uh, man, Big Graph, that was the definition of my later career. <laughs> you know, a, but um, but anyway, so that, yeah, that's him. So when people read it, think Orson Welles, and uh, then my hero, it was a, a, um, a rich, original creation. It's based uh, visually on Peter Cushing. Uh, Peter Cushing around the 50s. 1950s, early 60s, when he still could be more physical in his role. And he, uh, this is Brom Cromwell, and uh, he is a, if you can imagine it, a more whimsical Solomon Kane. 
<laughs> That's a great Whimsy and Solomon Kane don't often come up in the same breath, I'm sure, but in this case we have a whimsical or mirthful Solomon Kane. So you get to see Peter Cushing act against Orson Welles uh, in the theater of your mind with this story, uh, since it never happened in real life that I'm aware. It really would have been a great sort of 50s, 60s Hammer Horror story. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. thought, yeah, it would have been. Uh-huh. Jumping ahead, I've heard you have a new Becky Sharp story coming. Uh, well, uh, this is uh, uh, for our, our friend, uh, Chris, the punster. And, oh, uh, he's gotten a Becky Sharp story out of you. He is, in fact, a lucky editor. Yeah, well, you know, he, after uh, I did the last interview with you guys, uh, that he was on, uh, he messaged me, and uh, he's doing a Dorian Gray uh, anthology. And uh, he was asking me about, you know, would I do a Becky Sharp story for it? And at first I didn't really know what to do, I mean, what, how I would handle that. Uh, and now I do. Um, it's uh, it's going to, uh, you know, it, it's going to be, it'll be in the Dorian Gray anthology, Dorian Gray himself will be peripheral to it, probably. Uh, but his uh, his painter uh, will probably be more on screen. The guy who actually painted the portrait of uh, of Dorian Gray uh, will be will be more on screen. And really interesting. And Basel, I'm excited to yeah, read Basel. this. Yes, yeah. and and I've got I teach I've, I've taught the picture of Dorian Gray and Oscar Wilde, uh, and I've uh, you know got really interested in the uh, aesthetic movement and how it turned into the decadent movement, and then also how the the you know, sort of parallel symbolist movement uh, yes. was, was was going on, and uh, I finally it just dawned on me recently how to handle something with this story. I'll also be drawing uh, from uh, although I've never read it, uh, but I read about it uh, an episode from uh, Husserman's uh, Against the Grain, uh, which is. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think very much beloved by Oscar Wilde. That was like honeymoon reading for him, which was probably not a good thing. Yeah, but there's this whole bizarre episode, I understand, in that book, where he, the, the main character uh, fixates like a, a, a jewel, uh, a ruby or something, into a tortoise's shell. And the tor- an attempt, I guess, you know, to make art out of life. And the tortoise can't bear it the way and it kills them and I thought well you know that kind of seems like the Dorian Gray kind of thing you know really in a nutshell yeah so I've, I've wondered you know if that was what was in uh, uh, in uh, Wild's mind with that and um, so anyway I got really fascinated with that and Walter Pater and it's the way these guys write about art and how it almost gives you this Zen Buddhist experience, you know, to, to lift you out of the flux of material reality, you know, more than a good still life's ever done for me, I have to say, you know, <laughs> some, apple, some apples it's on the always, table is what I saw. I have a dangerous yeah. suggestion, because it's always dangerous to give an author research recommendation, but oh, no. in Guillermo del Toro's book about his career so far, he spends a good 20 plus pages talking about those different art movements, about the symbolists, oh, cool. the aesthetics, the decadence, how all of those all came together. 
And I think what will be especially interesting for you is that he talks about them specifically in how those movements inspired horror and how you can use the lessons from them to write horror. Oh, that's very neat, yes. That's a hardback book, right? It's come out. Yes. Is, that, is that right? That's the what's giant the, hardback that came out with all of the notes from his notebooks. What's it the entitled? Um, I mean, I'm certain if you just go to Amazon and type in Guillermo del Toro, why is this book so big? It'll come up. But <laughs> barring the descriptive needs of Amazon, let me just pull up Amazon, and I will tell the title to all and sundry, if Amazon cooperates. Ignore the typing in the background, and it is loading. Maybe. Well, um, It is Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, My Notebooks, Collections, and Other Obsessions. Cabinet of Curiosities, okay, that's good. Yeah, I know there's a... a, I did not know that. There's a hardback uh, on the uh, making of uh, Pan the Labyrinth, I understand, too. Yes, there's a hardback on that. And he's also recently just had another book come out about his notebook and collections. Apparently, it's a sort of sequel. Okay. I'll need to pick that up at some point. Well, thanks for the tip. I appreciate it very much. Oh, yeah, when I was on my horror writing kick, it was one of the more useful books on how the process works. I strongly uh-huh. recommend it. Um, I met... Okay. And jumping forward into another thing you definitely wanted to cover, let's quickly talk about H.P. Lovecraft. You're starting to move into a new genre slash arena of writing. Um. Uh... Yeah, I've you know I've uh, I've never actually put uh, it down to paper. I know there is one Lovecraft story that I've had in mind for a long time, but very atypical. Um, but um, I thought I might try to expand my readership and uh, beyond the, the the new pulp uh, boundaries. Uh, which are probably, you know, more restraining than Lovecraft, I would say, although I'm sure there's some crossover between the two. Um, I think I could reach more people with something Lovecraft-related or suited, and, and, and then hopefully that would draw them in to read, you know, some things I've done before, I've already done previously. Oh, yes. So, uh, so that's that's kind of the, the hope there, and... Uh, yeah, so maybe that uh, maybe that that will work out. Um, I've got to, right now. I'm just sort of seeing what am I going to write next. Uh, I was thinking about writing a uh, commentary uh, on the uh, the King and Yala, the play, not the book. Um, but um, I think I've kind of mixed that. Um, and yes, I know there's only like six lines from the play. <laughs> <laughs> that we have <laughs> access to, but I wasn't going to let that stop me in the spirit of postmodern scholarship. Uh, yeah, I don't see that like would you know, be entertaining. lack of access. I thought about it, and then I thought people will, will hate it. You know, they'll feel ripped off when they get it. I mean, there are people who, you know, if somebody has read Pale Fire, they would get it, <laughs> you know. Uh, if somebody's read a book called Ibid, they would get it. But 
I don't know how many, you know, horror fans are really, you know, open for, uh, you know, whimsy again. My word comes up. A bit of literary whimsy with their horror. So I sort of backed off from that. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know, because having read or at least started some of the things you mentioned, I think that would work really well with the King and Yellow concept. You should huh. do it. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe so. Um, I'm, I'm trying to, still trying to work out uh, uh, another King and Yellow story uh, as well, and uh, I have one pretty much worked out um, about uh, a Lovecraftian story. Um, which uh, ties in with another theme of mine, that, uh, or a theme that's a favorite of mine, a uh, fascinating one to me, but I can't really say what it is because then um, somebody might beat me to the punch <laughs> after that all this time. Is the dangerous if they haven't virus. already. Yeah, if, they, if, they, if they haven't all already. So, so yeah, um, you know, I, I've thought about doing that. I just, you know, I, I have to see. Uh, there are things that I that I have in mind. Uh, there's the Sherlock Holmes book uh, that I mentioned. You know, yep. talked to you about, and uh, you know, trying to find a way to get that going. Uh, I also have a uh, an idea for a licensed uh, character that I, I would you know that I'm thinking about pitching uh, to somebody and see if they will bite with it or not. You know. Okay. Um, but uh, so right now I'm just sort of up up in the air for my next my next project. Well, as we're up in the air, let's land with this. Last time you were on as guest, you spoke about Liv and Maddie's love triangle. We're all on the edge of our seats. What are the latest developments? Oh my god! <laughs> well, the uh, unfortunately there there haven't been any real developments. Uh, they've sort of been you know that storyline's on a black back burner but i do understand that the you know the the suitor that i was in favor of josh uh is you know coming back this season um and so the other guy uh the other loser uh we, <laughs> who actually won who actually won the girl you know uh, he's only been present speaking of dorian gray in a very creepy portrait of him uh, that uh, Liv was plotting to get rid of because it was creeping her out. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, maybe Josh finds out if he slashes it that uh, Ziggy or whatever his name is will start aging, and uh, that will resolve that <laughs> triangle you know, really quickly. <laughs> I think Chris needs to contact the writers about getting this in his anthology. Oh, my word. You're <laughs> Um, Chris's Dorian Gray Oh, Chris, my Chris, yeah, Yeah, okay, Chris, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um, Before we we let you go, we are just a couple weeks after a mighty big Disney-related announcement, speaking of, for me, a beloved Disney sitcom, That's So Raven is getting a spinoff, a revival, and it's coming possibly next year, and Raven herself announced it, and there's details leaking bit by bit, and do you have thoughts? Now, who, is, who is this getting the That's so Raven. Or is this before your interest oh, in Disney oh, sitcoms? Oh. Yeah, you know, well, I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah. You know, that's a little bit before my time uh, with the Disney Channel. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm afraid I'm just not. 
I'm, Golden I'm just era. fly with you kids, you know. So, um, <laughs> I, uh, I I think I'll have to stick to living Maddie. Um, <laughs> I will not be darkening a multiplex door for that's so Raven. Uh, I, have to, <laughs> I have to say, but I will be there for the next Frozen movie. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes! I've heard that's your favorite. Uh, I do, I do love oh, Frozen. Yeah. But that, um, uh, yeah. I'm a Cinderella girl at heart. But, um, yeah, I've really been enjoying these uh, cosplays with gals who are doing a mashup between Elsa and Princess Leia's slave girl outfit. Um, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, uh, in fact, I, one of the best... I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I can imagine. I was working on, like, words there for half a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, there's a great photo somebody did with her uh, in that outfit, getting ready to zap somebody, and then Anna is in is in Han Solo mode um, with her blaster, and uh, she's got her vest, which I thought was cool. So the Solo vest is based on her bodice in the movie, so it's got that little fine flower work on it, you know. But anyway, go to my Facebook page; they're they're there in all their glory. Uh, which reminds me of the all important question: Where can our listeners find you online? Um, well, uh, you know, uh, right now, uh, my stuff is available by large through, uh, Amazon. Um, and, uh, I have an author's page there. Um, also, um, I have some comics work, uh, that's still available as far as I know through Comicsology, uh, digitally, uh, Lorna Relic Wrangler, and, uh, I would imagine, uh, Heaven's War as well. Yes, um, and then, Which then we the uh, both need to get you on some time to talk about. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, um, the Go to Saint Elster will be appearing in the upcoming Tales of the Shadow Man anthology, uh, and uh, the story we were talking about earlier. And um, you know, and then I'm in a lot of those back issues of, of that. Uh, oh yes, well. and also where they can find your article on the Thongor movie. Okay, the Thongor article is in the latest issue of Little Shop of Horrors, and uh, the cover story is uh, the Lost Continent. Um, and um, you know, so there's kind of a theme in the issue between the Lost Continent and Thongor of Lemuria, another Lost Continent, and. Um, so, yeah, that's available through the Little Shop of Horrors website, webpage, and um, also it should be available through um, comic shops and previews and that sort of thing. All right. Okay. Thank you very much for staying a bit longer to keep us updated on all of the things that our readers should definitely go out and purchase right now. Mm-hmm. Hint, hint. Oh. Wink, wink. And we will talk to you in the future. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope so. Thanks so much for your interest and your continued support. Thank you. All right, and after the break, we'll be back with a surprise. Yep, see you guys in a minute. And we're back, this time with our surprise guest, Tina Delucia. They are an expert on the black and white era of Doctor Who. They love Verity Lambert. They are a convention panelist. I suppose you can say But sadly, that, yes. <laughs> unlike Ivan Shaplowski, I don't know if they love cheese enough in order for that to be the biggest part of their resume. 
So while she may not be an official lover of cheese, she is Italian, so you know it's in her DNA. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's a joke for longtime listeners. I forgive all of our new listeners, but, Dina, tell us. Hi. Tell us everything (laughs) about classic who, black and white who, Verity Lambert, why it's wonderful, and why Unfortunately, we don't have five hours, so I'm not sure how much I can say. Well, we'll we'll focus, Mr. Giving Her, um, why? She is also one of the staff writers for Time Travel Nexus. Yes, and and you really should check out their post- on Unearthly Child, like I last week sang its praises, here we go again. You're welcome, Tina. Yes, she is our resident expert on the black The queen of the black and white era. The queen of the black and white era. So, but let's start there, actually. Why the black and white era? That's not usually a conventional, this is where I'm going to focus and be an expert on era. In fact, most people tend to say the very questionable advice of, watch the first episode of Unearthly Child, maybe look at Tomb of the Cybermen, and then skip everything else. So why should people love the black and white era? Oh, so many reasons. So many reasons. And I'm supposed... Let's make an itemized list, I suppose. <laughs> um, first of all, I think everyone's favorite part of the stories. They're extremely creative and extremely interesting. And oh, I'm just going to say it and see how many people hate me. I think they're a tad better than what we have right now in modern Doctor Who. That's it. I said it. They'll be coming for me, and that's completely all right. Um, would you also too. say black and white era is the best era overall? Yes. Yes, I would. <laughs> yes, I would. I've said that so many times, and everyone looks at me quite confused because they're like, really? You really think that? I'm like, yes, I do, and I will fight to the death for it. Um, another thing I think the black and white era does a lot better than its colored counterparts is character which is which is very odd because everyone likes to stereotype the 60s as like oh they were all wearing short skirts and they screamed and they just clung to the doctor and i'm like come come on come on jamie mccrimmon was one companion he shouldn't be the baseline for everybody else (laughs) (laughs) that that simply isn't fair we love you fraser (laughs) oh god fraser um Yes, you you have a lot of interesting characters that you just don't see in modern Who. You have characters from the past, characters from the future, modern characters, and characters from, uh, I don't know, you have people from, like, the far, far, far future that may or may not exist, depending on how well... Aliens. What? Aliens. And aliens. Lots of aliens. Well, not lots of aliens, but a few. We get a few. One of only two Time Lord companions. The other being Romana. I we're gonna put Romana's one character. Yes, there is Romana too, but she is still Romana in my heart. Um, what else? Also, I think just the creativeness is a lot more there because think about it. Classic Who had like the budget of a subway sandwich and like a week and a half to put everything together set wise and stuff like that. And I know I'm just generalizing, but that was that was practically the case. And then so everyone like make makes fun like oh they had the wobbly sets and the the sky is fake and I'm like well, yeah 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 you had that but then you had things like their London Underground set which looked so good and so realistic that actual people who worked on the underground threatened to sue Doctor Who because clearly they snuck into the subway system at night and that's but nope it was a set which I think is so cool 
<sighs> it is. That, that, that's one of my favorite stories I've heard about the Black One era, that that was actually almost a thing. So to organize this a bit more, here's my thought. Why yes. don't you give us an overview of the Black and White era, starting at the beginning? Like like an, like an episode summary, or just like... Well, I was more thinking, like, character set by character set and so on. Uh, so that people are familiarized with it, and then for maybe every TARDIS team, you can also give us a real sink-in-your-teeth highlight. And maybe your serial recommendation for that team. Oh, I can do that. All right. So, of course, we can't start off with a companion. We've got to start off with the doctor himself, the man who started it all, William freaking Hartnell. That's his full and correct name. <laughs> um, William Hartnell's doctor is, of course, the first doctor. And you, he's very, very, very different to the doctors we see today. Although I will say that Peter Capaldi has some Hartnell-esque elements the Doctor starts off as we see him in the very first episode in Unearthly Child. Very, kind of a very gruff kind of figure. He's not exactly authoritarian. He's he's very, very conniving and cunning, clearly. But he's definitely sort of a no-nonsense sort of person and is not very happy when a certain two pa- pair of two teachers follow his granddaughter Susan home one late evening in the misty streets of London, as you do, because, you know, that's completely normal. Falling a Absolutely. teenager home in the dead of night. All. Normal. Um, and of course, over time, he grows from this very, very gruff, almost cold sort of a man into like this part of, am I allowed, can I say uh, badass or is that not allowed? Yes, you can say badass. <laughs> to the badass granddad that we all wish we could have. Um, he also become. he's also a lot kinder past that little icy exterior he likes to put out. He's very pompous in nature, but not exactly in character. That's the, the front he puts up when he grabs his lapels and, you know, hmm, yeah, yes, Chesterfield, I know exactly what I'm doing. No, he does not. And that's another thing that's really special about him, and coincidentally with uh, Patrick Trouton, is that really they don't know where they're where he's going. He doesn't know how he's going to get there, when where he's going to get there, when he's going to get there. And I think that this makes him a lot more fun. He's not very predictable. Though I can say that I can correctly tell you when would be a more appropriate time for him to say hmm or humph, but that's just pathetic me talking. I mentioned his granddaughter, Susan. Um, now, Susan, oh, Susan gets a bad rap. Um, she's Everyone's like, oh, she's just there to scream and twist her ankle. She twists her ankle three times overall. Once was in a book, once was in an anniversary special. Fight me. Um, Susan is the unearthly child, and I can't really think of a more fitting description for her because she's she's a teenager, very much so, but there's always something so slightly off about her. And even when you find out that she's an alien and she's got this time machine, and oh my god, there's still just like this little little thing that's just so off-putting. But she's also extremely adorable and very curious and also not de- definitely has like this sense of Grandfather's grandfather's in trouble. BRB, gotta go beat up some cavemen because that's the first natural instinct for her. And of course, while, she le- Oh, yes. I said, while, while you're talking about Susan, I have to interject here and say that no one in the history of the English language or in the future will ever say grandfather like she does. Like this, just, ah, it's just she says it so whimsically. It's just so beautiful, and it's it's every time it's like she says it, I'm like, oh my gosh. It's just the most magical way to say that word, and I love it. She's precious, and she was meant... She wasn't exactly meant um, as, like, the audience, you know, to put themselves into. That was more of 
Ian and Barbara's role, who I'll get to, but she was supposed to connect with the kids, and I don't think she did that, but I think that worked well for her character. Because she she's not supposed to be human or normal or connecting to. She's a strange little alien yes. who gets left on Earth with one shoe. <sighs> ah, damn it, one. And she's also the reason why we have one of the best, not I don't think the best, but one of the best, first Doctor and overall Doctor Who speeches of all time. Oh my gosh. Uh, one day I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back when the Doctor's talking about seeing Susan again. I actually, a uh, fun tidbit about me, I used that as my senior quote at the end of high school. Everyone's like, wow, that's so deep. What's it from? I'm like, it's from Doctor Who. <laughs> That is, to me, actually, wildly one of the, probably one of the best Doctor Who quotes, period, is that speech. It is. It's just so, so well done. And Yes. Moving yes. right along to... Your favorite teachers. Yeah. Love of my life, Barbara Wright, and Ian Chesterton, Chessington, Chatterton. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, there's a joke between the Doctor and Ian where... The Doctor never really seems to remember Ian's name. Now, obviously, in the ways of the ways that fans are, we've kind of, like, you know, exaggerated to, like, he he would never get his name right. There were a few times when he did, but he did it so often, it just became... It's it's hilarious. You think, like, I've been traveling with you for two years. I, we've been through life and death situations. Come along, Chessington. Um, but Barbara Wright is a history teacher, and Ian Chesterton's a science teacher, who, as I said before, follows Susan went home in the dead of night on November the 23rd, because they're worried about her, because she's, she's odd. What is this? Clearly. Logic. And they stumble, literally, Barbara stumbles into the TARDIS, and the doctor being the doctor as he was in the States, just like, well, found out our secret, it's kidnapping time, children. And he winks them off very unwillingly into their adventure in space and time. Um, now, Barbara's character, she's definitely the more sensible of the, of the group. Definitely more of a sort of a take charge sort of a person. She keeps everybody sane and she's... I'm, not, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna use rational for lack of a better word at the moment. But she's definitely the glue that sort of keeps the group together. Um, Ian... Um, is more of the action man, as was his that was his job to be. Since you know Doctor Who is nine hundred and something years old, he can't be you know fighting off aliens with his bare fists, even though he kind of did that a few times. Anywho, hmm. Ian is definitely very, very a take things as he sees them sort of a thing. And but then like also at the same time, I call him doubting Ian a lot. Like he walks into the TARDIS. It's this big room that's. Definitely not supposed to fit inside a tiny police box. He's like, clearly, this is the trick. This this can't happen. And even though he's seen... Then he goes back in time and he does all this. He's like, I still don't quite believe it. I'm like, would, would you like a diagram, Ian? Would you... Neon sign. From what little um, I've seen of him, I think he does need all yeah. of the above. He's... His, his uh, greatest strength and also his greatest flaw is the fact that he has a great hero complex, I think. Especially when it comes to Barbara, he's willing to like rush into the into the fray and protect the innocent, you know, protect himself and the people around him. But then at the same time, that can lead him into a lot of dangerous and ridiculous situations. I think the best example of that is in an episode where Barbara gets poisoned, called Planet of Giants, 
this poison could infect infect the world because it's an insecticide. And Ian's more worried about we gotta get Barbara better. Screw the rest of the world. The world can burn for all I care. But they're wonderful, and um, they were t- that team TARDIS stayed together for a year, I believe, a little bit over a year before uh, Cal and Ford slash Susan decided to leave. Yes, and I per- it's my favorite episode of all time. So of course I'm gonna suggest it, and it's Susan's last, and it's the Dalek invasion of Earth. Um, I will always put this as my number one episode of Doctor Who, period, in all of 53 years and over 900 and something episodes, whatever number we're on, because you get to see each character at their best. I mean, uh, Barbara drives through Daleks, just in a truck, just blasts through them, which is fantastic. Ian and the Doctor have this great camaraderie where they're working with, like, this group of, like, human rebels. And Susan, ah, oh, so this is, and I believe Carolyn Ford has mentioned this, this is, like, one of the ma- the biggest character arc for Susan, where she goes from being this teenager almost into this more womanly character when she, she finally gets um, a love interest in this character named David. And... It's a real source of growth for her. And, of course, it's her last episode, which kind of sucks. It's like, oh, where could we go with this? Oh, she's leaving. Oh. But that's also where the one-day speech comes in, and it's fabulous. Also important yes. episodes to check out, I think, are... Is Actually, the Ast- one thing I'm going to cut in and say. Yes. Andrew Cartmel, in his highly fascinating, somewhat idiosyncratic book, Through Time, The Unauthorized and Unofficial History of Doctor Who, only hmm. picked eight serials that you should definitely watch from Doctor Who. Oh. And one of his very rare picks from out of hundreds of serials is The Dalek Invasion of Earth. Well, n- now it's official. Go watch it right now. It's like twelve ninety nine at your local F- local FYE or something. That cheap? Let's go right now. I'm actually like, I wonder if ours actually has it. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, but your other recommendations. The other one I have to recommend is the Aztecs because it's Barbara at her best. It's she's in her element. Um, the first Doctor era was very good about historical episodes, and obviously they're brought back to the time of the Aztecs. If you couldn't tell, mm-hmm. and I had um, my doubts. I had your doubts, and she's mistaken as this Aztec goddess, and she thinks. I could I could save the whole civilization. This is perfect. I'm in the perfect position to change these people. So when Cortez shows up, he won't kill them. And the doctor's as a, it's not a grand speech. It's just a few lines in the script. But it's you can't change history. Not one line. And then Barbara argues, and he's like, "I've tried. Believe me, I've tried." And ah, oh, it's so great because while we sort of had a hint of this, we can't go back and fix everything and, you know, change things up in their last historical episode, which is Marco Polo. Rest in peace, Marco Polo. Why are you missing? Um, this is the first time we actually see the doctor really interject and explain, and we see the consequences of actually trying to change history. Barbara is unsuccessful, and one of the other uh, characters loses his, his faith in his whole religion, and all this stuff happens, and it's just wonderful for Barbara as a character and for her relationship with the Doctor and Caroline Ford's on vacation, but what are you going to do? Um, so, yes. But after we have Susan, there's Vicky. Oh, Vicky. Vicky is this orphan from the, f- the future 
that they find on this planet called Dido, which the, de- the Doctor has apparently been there before. Which is This is also the first time where the Doctor's like, ah, yes, I remember this place. And it, uh, like, you know, tells us, all right, he's done other things. We getting an explanation for it? Of course we don't. It's Doctor Who. What did you expect? But Vicky is the Doctor's partner in crime. Where you have Susan sort of looking after her grandfather. Vicky is right there with him, arm in arm, ready to like cause trouble or get involved in whatever adventure he has cooked up for them. She's extremely she's she's extremely sweet, but at the same time, she doesn't really take any nonsense. She's more of a which which is a little bit different from the granddaughter archetype from before. And Barbara and Ian leave while Vicky's still with the Doctor. So for a while, and we don't we don't really get just solo Vicky and the Doctor except for certain parts in certain episodes. But I must say, when they are together, a it's super cute. I because he he does the Doctor tends to with any of his younger companions tend to take on the grandfatherly role or the fatherly fatherly role, whatever you want to call it. But there's a sort, different sort of camaraderie between the two of them, which I just adore. And I think the best episode for this team, even, I'm gonna. This is technically their own team because Susan's gone. New team. I'd say look at the Romans, which is Vicky's second serial. It's really funny. The Doctor and Vicky have a lot of moments together, and she gets to. This is her first real adventure, so she's just dipping her toe into everything, and it's so nice to see her like. Because with Susan, she's explored, but she knows what's going on. She's had adventures before. This is Vicky's first real leap, and it's very fun to see. Any other comments from the peanut gallery? Nope, just that we're closing in on our last eight minutes. Oh, speed ahead. Steven's great. Speed ahead, pick your favorites. Uh, Steven Taylor's amazing and great, and he gets a lot of bad rap because not a lot of his episodes are missing, but if if you can stand watching a reconstruction... Of an episode of missing episodes, which is basically you see a lot of still pictures, but the complete audio from before. I'd say check out the massacre, which has the second best or the first first best for first Doctor speech of all time, and also a lot of character development between Stephen not wanting to be on adventures anymore because he's seen too much death, which is really cool. Um, so moving on from that, you got Ben and Polly, who are the first companions to re- witness the regeneration, which is awesome. And for them, I'm actually going to not recommend a first Doctor episode, but a second Doctor episode, which is the Macra Terror, but explaining Ben and Polly a bit. They're wonderful. Ben's a sailor. Polly's this sort of posh working girl. Not not like that. Not like that. Hoops. Connotations. Um, <laughs> they're, they're great not together. Not the best choice of words. Not the best choice of words. What I like between the two of them is Polly does have her tendency to yell, but... She's the one who's very good at keeping out of scrapes, while Ben's the one who's often getting injured slash captured a lot. Would you like to tell us what happened when we met Anarchy? Who is Annika? Annika. Annika. We were at LA Who, and we met Annika Wills, who played Polly. And I was dressed as Polly, and my friend Tyson was dressed as Ben, a la The War Machines, which is the first Doctor episode. And we went up to her to get her autograph, and she's like, oh, you're Ben! Oh, and you're me! And she was so excited to see us. And she insisted that we take a picture with, we take a picture. Like, not like an official photo with the nice 
fancy photographer people just let's take a picture right here right now and we were all like oh my god it's annika fast forward a bit to when we had a nice big official photo with her and fraser and we were all the second doctor squad and she was even more elated and so was fraser and when the picture was done and me and Tyson had another solo picture with her. She she took my hand and put an arm around Tyson and said, you, you two are just my darlings and thank you. And we were all like, oh, my God. And then we only found out later through Annika's uh, rep or agent, whatever you want to call him, that when we left, Annika said that it was the greatest fan experience she's had in all of her 25 years of doing conventions and such. And we, we she started crying. We made Annika Wills cry. We made Annika we Wills cry. cry. And like, part of me is like, yes! And another part of me is like, oh, God! What have we done? That's basically where I'm still at. I'm still at that. I'm just like, oh, no! I'm not ever sure I'll ne- not be at that, to be honest. Yeah. But, oh, gosh. Ben and Polly also suffer from missing episode syndrome, as, as well as, like, Steven does. Oh, God, I forgot Dodo. Oh, well, we shoot. can bring you on again. I'm just going to yeah. say, in five minutes, would you like to tell the world about Victoria Waterfield? Would I? Okay. Second doctor. <laughs> Second doctor, Patrick Troughton, the cosmic hobo, completely opposite to William Hartnell's doctor. He's fun. He's energetic. Still has no idea what he's doing. He's wonderful and quirky, and if you don't love him already, how dare you? I kid. Um, now, Or does she? <laughs> What? Just continue. Comments. Uh, Patrick inherits Ben and Polly and then picks up a Scottish Highlander named Jamie McCrimmon, who will stay with him for his entire tenure, save one episode, being the power of a Dalek's first one, which is impressive. Uh, Jamie is a wonderful, wonderful character. He's very Scottish. (laughs) He's so Scottish. Oh, my God. Bless you, Fraser. And um, then, after Ben and Polly leave, and it's just it's just Jamie and the Doctor, they pick up one wonderful, lovely Victoria Waterfield played by the beautiful and perfect Deborah Watling. Do I sound biased? Because of course I am. Uh, Victoria Waterfield is a, Victor- a girl from the Victorian era. <laughs> They're so good at names. Um, whose father got involved with these scientific experiments that Oops, j- accidentally brought on the Daleks. Not very good for you, Mr. Waterfield. That ends up killing him and leaving her stranded on the Daleks' planet of Scaro. And Jamie's like, we're taking her with us, right? And Two's like, yeah, of course. Victoria is another character that gets an extremely bad rap of, oh, she she screams and, and she, she doesn't really do anything. And let me tell you something, dear, dear listeners. Victoria Waterfield screams, took down not only the Ice Warriors, but evil seaweed. And I know maybe that doesn't sound too frightening, evil seaweed, but it was pretty frightening. She just took down two monsters all by the power of her leather lung scream. Not to mention... I'm uh, going to interrupt you briefly just to yeah. say that at a convention in the 90s, they asked Deborah Watling to scream. And she asked, are you sure? Yeah. Are you really sure? You yeah. Down <laughs> and she deafened the entire room. And She let <laughs> loose like never before. And, and it was such that a restaurant across the street 
thought someone was getting murdered. <laughs> oh, that's right. This was Valentine's Day. So she cleared the restaurant, looking around like, w- w- what happened? And she's just like, well. Um, <laughs> Victoria's very cute. She's very tiny. She's barely five foot. But she looks sweet and innocent. But aha, that's just what she wants you to think. When you, Victoria is the type of character who, yes, she's very, very conservative and reserved. But like, at the same time, she will fit. She's happy to fake cry to trick an enemy, and will happily steal a gun away from another enemy to shoot a Cyberman and a Cybermat, rather than just running away screaming. She's takes. She's English is a wonderful thing that I don't speak. Um, <laughs> She basically is dropped into this world of, look at this, time travel and science and space. And she's like, all right. Like, she doesn't, (laughs) she just completely takes it and adapts so quickly. Unlike Jamie, who does take a little bit longer to be like, well, what's this thing, Doctor? You know, sort of a thing. To the extent that he ever adapts. (laughs) That's a wonderful question. The answer is no. (laughs) And, of course, another one of her hidden skills, lockpicking. Lockpicking, yes. She can, this tiny little Victorian child can lockpick, probably deafen half your family with just a little shriek, will happily trick any sort of bad guy who comes in her way, and is the first companion to leave because she gets sick of it. Something that we see with Tegan much later on. Um... It's because New Who's favorite trope. Oh, what? And then becomes New Who's favorite trope. Yes, it does. But she was the first, mind you, and it best. was. It's a, it's a valid reason because she's been getting. Victoria doesn't have like that good of a time. She has to deal with the Great Intelligence and the Yeti twice, Ice Warriors, Daleks, Evil Patrick Troughton, with his <laughs> seventeen different accents. I mean, she's seen some stuff, and she's she's frightened, and she's tired of running and almost dying, and worried about if Jamie and the doctor are gonna die as well. And you, and the, it's not like this comes out of left field. You see it all throughout her last episode of Fairy from the Deep. You can hear it, and just how like she she wants off this crazy ride, and she gets off, and it's heartbreaking. And I'm not going to ever forgive the BBC for burning it. Yep. Ever. Especially because it burned her and Jamie kissing and... (laughs) Pain. Pain. So, in our final moments, what Victoria Waterfield cereals do you recommend? All of them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Part of me... I've been trying to steer away from mentioning missing episodes, but honestly, the missing ones are some of the best classic Who episodes in the world that we have. Which which sucks because they're gone, and you can te- you can watch them, but a lot of people have difficulty watching it. I myself, I when I first watched Enemy of the World before they found it, I didn't like it. I I I, I didn't get it. I couldn't stand it. Then of course when they found it, it's become one of my favorite favorite what favorite second Doctor episodes. But I'm gonna I'll have to go with. Fury from the Deep that I've mentioned so many times. Okay. And what complete serial for an easy ease into Victoria would you recommend? An easy... Uh, pro- probably Team of the Cybermen. Okay. Oh, well, good. That was the one he made, introduced me to her with, so I guess... It's a bit of a little bit of a 
longer one, but you have a fantastic speech from Patrick in it to Victoria about loss and dealing with missing people, which I think it's a speech that honestly should should be one of the more better known Doctor Who quotes, but it's not. I agree. It's Isn't just Geronimo and shit. And also one of the best Cybermen episodes. Isn't this the one with the um, Fraser Pat improv? Or is that another one? Yes, this yeah, is that's it. the Fraser Pat improv. But you'll but, have to hear about that another time because we are running out of time. Yeah. I apologize so we'll be for, back. for so long. Oh, I must have made a terrible impression. <laughs> um, You're quite okay. Yes. So we'll be right back after this break. anymore join us next week when we talk to derek ferguson about christmas stories dylan krampus movies and all sorts of other things that eric's so involved with it'll be a good one before we end i want to thank our sponsor the victoria waterfield finishing school where your child can learn to scream pick locks and fake cry a special thanks to robert e ronsky jr for starting us on this journey as well as tiny white and the deadites for our show's theme leaf on a stream Thanks to all who have listened. You make this possible. And remember to subscribe and rate our show on iTunes. It makes all the difference. As always, everything happens somewhere. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.